Hi, this is Antonio Luich for Padded Cell Podcast, a conversation around mental health. Hello and welcome to Padded Cell Podcast. I am Anthony Oluoch. One of the outcomes of the current coronavirus pandemic is that it has brought to fore what some might consider an obvious thing, but it really is something that has been festering under society's skin for a long time, the untenable class disparity. Healthcare systems in many poor countries, especially in Africa, are already severely stretched with limited financing and resources. Access to hospitals and especially intensive care units are generally much lower than in developed nations. Studies have estimated that less than half of Africa's population has access to modern health facilities. Some countries also face extra burdens such as battling other endemic diseases, recent natural catastrophes, or coping with large-scale refugee influxes. Research suggests that those in lower economic strata are likelier to catch the disease. They're also likelier to die from it. And even for those who remain healthy, they are likelier to suffer loss of income or health care as a result of quarantines and other measures, potentially on a sweeping scale. At the same time, inequality itself may be acting as a multiplier on coronavirus's spread and deadliness. Research on influenza has found that in an epidemic, poverty and inequality can exacerbate rates of transmission and mortality for everyone. When inequality is high, the cost of living tends to rise, forcing more lower-income families to live paycheck to paycheck. At the same time, the decline of labor unions and the rise of part-time work means that low-income workers have fewer protections. As a result, crises like coronavirus can deepen the gap between the haves and the have-nots. We need to talk about those that are adversely affected by the virus and the various lockdowns that are happening around the world. What are the psychological impacts of loss of income when said income was only coming on a day-to-day -day basis? How do people learn to live in what is now the new reality given that, as my guest today puts it, we have collectively decided that life will not return to normal without knowing quite what it is that will emerge? Are there any solutions in place to alleviate the stress faced by vulnerable, marginalized, and frankly disempowered communities in our society? So to take us through these questions is Graham Wood, the CEO for the Aga Khan Foundation in Eastern Africa. Thank you for joining me, Graham. Very welcome, Anthony. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you. So I'm a career relief and development worker. I've worked over, gosh, many years now, 30, mainly in Africa, but also in the Middle East and in Asia. I began life working in the education field and was one of the very early advocates of what we called emergency education, which is making sure that refugees and displaced people have access to decent, decent standards of education. And then worked myself up into a series of roles in many of the disaster areas over the years, in Somalia, in Rwanda, Afghanistan, Cambodia, Iraq, um, those kinds of places. So spent a lot of time working um, in, in full-scale full emergencies with everything from, you know, food delivery to water and health, ensuring that some of the most vulnerable people on the planet have access to at least the basics. 
And then for the last decade or so, I've been working more in the in the development field, in areas such as health, education, livelihoods, um, and uh, a whole series of other other, other um, sectors as well. But the last three years, I've been fortunate enough to work for the Aga Khan Foundation, which um, uh, throughout Eastern Africa, um, which is a foundation that focuses on also on health and education, on, on livelihoods and uh, economic security issues, and a foundation that's very concerned with issues around the environment, um, trying to ensure that the, the air we breathe and the sea and the water is, is, is free of pollutants. So a foundation that works very generally across East Africa. So that's, that's what I've been doing in a, in a nutshell, Anthony. Oh, brilliant. Um, and, and because you've mentioned the Aga Khan Foundation, what is the Aga Khan Foundation doing around uh, mental health? Sure. So the, the foundation um, is, a, is a generalist foundation rather than a specific foundation. So we don't, we don't specialize in any one area. But we do, as, as everybody in East Africa at least will know, um, the Aga Khan um, hospital system is, is very well known in the region, both in terms of running hospitals and, uh, and clinics. And the foundation itself plays um, a role in conjunction with those health facilities in working at the very deepest level of the communities, particularly in the poor, poorer, more vulnerable, the poorer, more vulnerable communities, to try and help them with access to resources and access facilities, access to facilities so that their physical, mental, and social well-being is taken care of as well as possible. So as a foundation, we, we work, for example, we're working at the moment in, in Uganda, um, trying to raise awareness around mental health issues in some communities. As you know, as you know, Anthony, mental health issues Mental health disease is something of a stigma in, in many parts of the world, and I think it's true of a lot of Africa, uh, particularly perhaps for men. So people often bury or ignore problems which later rise to the surface and may, may cause violence or drug abuse, alcoholism, whatever it is. So as a foundation, what we're really trying to do is to make communities aware of mental health as a serious issue. Um, like any like any health issue, and trying to find ways of community-based methodologies to help people acknowledge those challenges and work through some of them. As you also know, um, you know the, the sort of one-to-one -one therapy method that might work um, that might might work in I don't know in Los Angeles is not going to work in 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 much of Africa because there are not there are not the resources for that. So our our philosophy is very much community based and around traditional community based methods of healing, but primarily to get people to accept there's a problem where there is and to understand that it's like any other health problem. And it's something that in many cases can be treatable if the if the person is willing to be treated. And uh, just as an add-on to that, uh, how have you as the Aga Khan Foundation been able to work around the stigma that is normally attached to mental health 
in the African continent about, you know, especially around speaking about uh, people's individuals' mental health? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I, I learned a lot, um, Anthony, from being, um, you know, very involved um, over the last 20 years, I guess, with the whole HIV AIDS epidemic. And particularly, many people remember that particularly in the early stages, really nobody talked about it. Partly because, of course, initially it was thought of as a gay disease. So in Africa, there was another stigma as well as just having the disease. But even when it became a disease that, that everybody, regardless of their sexuality, were vulnerable to, there was a lot of secrecy. A lot of, uh, a lot of people would not, um, would not acknowledge it. It wouldn't go on to death certificates. Burials would happen quietly or people would pretend, families would pretend it was something else. And one of the key ways I think that this has been addressed is for people themselves who were HIV positive to come forward and say, look, this is my reality. Um, this is how I'm living. This is how I'm dealing with it. And in a similar way, I think, the, the best advocates for mental health services and facilities are the very people who themselves are either have had or are having challenges with mental health because they're going to be listened to you know and and so so the more we can get um, advocates around mental health using people who themselves have those challenges the more people will listen and to do it in a community-based non-threatening way you know it's not about lectures and powerpoints and all those things it's about those sort of day-to-day -day realities of community health workers who who are known in their communities and have respect in their communities. And then sometimes bringing, bringing in other people who, 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 as I've said, have had or are having mental health challenges in the past. I think that's the best way to do it. Now, uh, taking us back to what is currently happening, uh, what is happening right now, with the outbreak of COVID-19 over the last few months, what changes have you been forced to make as a foundation in light of this particular outbreak? Yeah, gosh, fun fundamental ones, Anthony, really. I mean, I think for the past month or so, our physical offices, I think we have nine offices around in East Africa, so we've closed. I think we, we took the decision as a foundation to close slightly earlier than mandated because I think we could see, you know, could see what was coming and we wanted to make sure that our staff were protected. So, um, but that hasn't stopped many of us from working effectively remotely. Um, so that's, that's what we've been doing now for the past, gosh, it's nearly a month now. Um, and we're trying to do two things, I guess. We're trying to repurpose existing programs that we have both programs that we are funding ourselves, but also that are funded by other, other donors, trying to repurpose some of those towards um, COVID-19 issues. Um, again, often in conjunction with our colleagues in the Aga Khan Health Services, um, who are very much part of this. And then also trying to find new sources of revenue to help um, to help people who are particularly vulnerable. And as a, as a foundation, what we're really focused on, you know, as I was talking about mental health issues and our focus being in the community, our 100% focus in COVID-19 is 
in poorer, more vulnerable, marginalized communities, spreading those very, very, very basic messages about, you know, washing your hands, sanitizing when you can, social distancing, which we all know is a huge problem in many parts of Africa. Um, but trying to give people knowledge through the radio, through local languages um, across the region so that they can at least become more aware and take care of themselves and their families to the extent they can. You have uh, you've mentioned that most of the work that the Aga Khan Foundation does is targeted to the more vulnerable communities, and this is actually the focus of this particular episode. Uh, I want to focus on the psychological effect of losing income, especially for the poor communities. The question I have is, uh, what are the specific problems that you have seen that have been caused for these communities due to the lockdowns that have been made necessary by the COVID-19 outbreak? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great, great question, Anthony. And, and the answer is, is, is complex in some way, because as, as we know, um, the majority of Africa does not have the kind of safety net that, say, the, my own country, the UK, has. So in the UK, um, many people have been laid off work, but the government is prepared to pay 80% of their salary for some weeks, some months, until they can get back to work. That's not a, that's not a position that um, people in the vast majority of Africa are in. So um, the second thing that's very relevant to this part of the world is the fact that is it 70? Could it even be 80% of people live by the day? So people eat what they earn during the day. You go out and you, I don't know, you, you build a wall or you, you sell a secondhand shirt or you, you, know, you, you work in the transport sector or whatever most people do in this part of the world. It's day to day. They don't have... They, people don't have savings accounts, that, that they don't have large resources to rely on. So it's, uh, there's a very specific challenge here um, with the kind of lockdowns that I know you're facing where you are at the moment in South Africa. Um, one of the neighboring countries to, to Kenya, Uganda, has a pretty much total lockdown at the moment. And it's very, very hard, therefore, for people who are living day by day to access the kind of... Uh, basic needs, food, water, medicine, the very basic things that they need. So, and I think that, that while this can be managed for a short time, um, you know, with community resources, people sharing, people borrowing, lending, as, as always happens, that obviously is not, a, is not a long-term position. So I think there's a lot of psychological problems that are built up um, just by the uncertainty. You know, a lot of people like certainty. Certainty is very good for mental health. Knowing, knowing what you're going to eat tomorrow, right, um, is, is, a very good, is a very good thing. Knowing that you can pay your rent tomorrow is a very good thing. And, and therefore, taking that certainty away is, is a real challenge. So I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about the mental health issues. And then something you addressed in a, in a previous podcast, Anthony, the, the whole, um, again, another kind of taboo, isn't it, in this part of the world, domestic abuse, um, which happens on a very large scale, um, but is not often reported. Um, 
And, you know, we have now people who may be actually confined in a very small house or room even with the very people that are abusing them, be they adults or children. I mean, I think there's another whole area around child abuse there as well. So there are very specific ramifications. And then I think one other area, one other thing I would identify is, is the whole sort of refugee and displaced and indeed homeless community. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to... You don't have to go far when you can walk around the streets of Nairobi or, 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 or Kampala to find people living and sleeping on the streets. Um, Uganda is, is, is home to one of the largest refugee populations in the world. Um, you know, these people live in, at best, challenging circumstances. Um, and so, so, you know, people who are homeless or displaced, again, have very specific needs. And I, I said that was the last one, but there's one more, of course, which is very important in this part of the world, in, in, in Eastern Africa, are people living in slums, um, which, again, in the cities is a majority of people. And the notion that those people can possibly self-isolate is, is really not, uh, it's just not feasible for them, right? I mean, they cannot... If you're living, if you're living in, a, in, in slum conditions, you're probably sharing a room with half a dozen, maybe even a dozen other people. Um, every, single, every single moment of every day, you're interacting with people in some kind of way. So um, the idea of social, social isolation, which is what we're told is going to, you know, one of those phrases we've all learned in the last few weeks, Anthony, is flattening the curve, right? It's something that Everybody has that in their vocabulary now. And, you know, if, if you need to self-isolate to flatten the curve, then there's very little chance that that is the method by which the curve is going to be flattened in the majority of Africa because it's not, it's not feasible for the majority of people. And, and now just to build up on what you just said, and, and slum dwelling is true for most cities worldwide, including in South Africa. In Johannesburg especially, there are quite a number of places where it would be incredibly difficult for people to self-isolate in the way that the World Health Organization is suggesting that we should do. So I'm just going to ask um, what your take is on whether these lockdowns, in the nature that they've been uh, they have been suggested uh, are the right thing for countries with high levels of unemployment and low incomes. And of course, with the increased levels of slum dwellings across the world and across cities. Sure. And I think that, you know, if, if I could actually give you an answer to that question, um, Anthony, I could probably make myself very wealthy by telling all the countries of the world how to how to deal with COVID-19. And of course, I'm not an epidemiologist either, but um, um, like, like you and like many other people, I, I'm watching and observing and listening and trying to understand what it is experts from the World Health Organization, but also in governments, are telling us. And it's, it's slightly confusing because we, as always, of course, um, experts are not of one view. I mean, I'm, I'm by training a political scientist, and you never find political scientists who have the same view. And it's, it, it's true, I think, of epidemiologists and others who are trying to look at the situation. So governments get different advice. I mean, they get advice from WHO, but they get their own advice. And we've seen 
around the world, governments react in very different ways. You know, South Korea has not reacted like the United States, which has not reacted like Denmark, which has not reacted like Tanzania, which has not reacted like South Africa. Countries have, therefore, I think what they've done is to take the best scientific advice they can, which is mixed, but then also to take a pragmatic view of um, their societies. So, I mean, the, uh, the, the president of the Republic of Kenya last week in an address to the nation recognized very sorry, specifically that the majority of people in Kenya do, as we talked about earlier, live day to day. And therefore he said, you know, um, keeping people confined to their house for weeks on end um, may, may help potentially with the COVID-19 problem. But of course, it's going to lead to a whole series of other social problems. And then you add to that the thing we just talked about, which is the fact that, that, that isolation is not a solution for many people because of their living accommodation. Then total lockdowns are going to be challenging, if you like, to the to the social fabric. Um, and I think, you know, and, and it's not just a problem I think Africa faces, Anthony. I mean you look at the you look at where the United States is now. Do you do you open up? Do you keep closed down? And part of that calculation, rightly or wrongly, part of that political calculation is going to be an economic one. Because you know you're seeing you're seeing predictions about you know, global GDP falling from, you know, I've seen, I've seen, uh, I've seen numbers from 7% to 70%. Nobody knows. But let's say that, you know, global GDP for 2020 falls by 25%. That in itself is a crisis. And many, many people, particularly the poorest people on the planet, will, will, will die as a result of that lack of economic activity because it results in lack of income for them, right? And therefore they can't eat and they can't feed their families and they can't send their kids to school. So I think, you know, all governments are really grappling and that's why they're doing different things. I think they're trying to take into account the realities of their society, trying to keep the curve as flat as they possibly can. Um, but we're dealing with this day to day. And there's nobody alive today who's been through a kind of global pandemic like this in, in quite this way. And uh, so I think all governments are learning. And I, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a right solution to this. What I hope is that, you know, at some point in the future, whenever that is, when we've got this epidemic under control, we've got vaccines, treatment or whatever, that you know some great minds sit around and say what worked what didn't work why did it work why didn't it work what will we do better next time that that is indeed true and uh, that is the one thing that i hope for as well that we take some of the lessons that we have learned in this particular time and apply them in the future and just as we wrap up, um, we've talked a lot about uh, the problems that people are facing. Now, are there any solutions that you can 
think of for some of the problems faced, um, some of the psychological impacts of these lockdowns, the psychological impact of COVID-19. I have spoken in previous episodes about the fact that there are people out there who are willing to listen, but are there any other solutions that you see that will help reduce the harm and anxiety and stress that people are facing? Yeah, I mean, I think humans, humans are very resourceful. And I think um, in these very difficult times, what we've seen is that communities particularly become, become stronger and support systems within communities become stronger. Even in countries like, like my own, where, where community is very fragmented, um, we now see people coming together to help more vulnerable people um, you know, on a daily basis, whether it's doing shopping or, you know, phoning them or, or whatever it is. And I think, I think that in parts of the world like Eastern Africa, where the rest of Africa, where communities anyway are, are, are stronger, I think those community networks and making sure those community networks stay healthy and strong are a significant part of helping people through through mental health challenges and helping people to perhaps reduce some of the the really serious uncertainties that that, that people have. Of course, there are lots of resources and so on online through text messages and so on. But of course, many many people don't have access to online online facilities. Um, but everybody has access to some kind of community, some kind of community support system. And, you know, you hear very, um, very motivating stories about how communities, I was talking to colleagues in Tanzania just yesterday or the day before about how, you know, people who are particularly vulnerable to COVID, people who are older or people with underlying diseases, how communities are rallying around and really looking after them. And I think part of, a men part of any mental health uh, challenge that anybody faces is the feeling that they're alone, right? The feeling that it's just them against everybody. And I think by communities coming together and, and really trying to help, these, help people who are challenged, and, and that's, that's many, many people at the moment, I think that's, that's one thing that they can do. And I think also on a wider level, um, you know, governments around the world have to seriously grapple with with providing some kind of safety net to citizens, whatever that is. And there are lots of initiatives, um, some funded by government, some funded by donors around cash transfers, food distribution. Um, I know some of that's going on in South Africa too. And these things also help ameliorate some of the, some of the challenges because of course, if people at least know they've got something to eat, they're in a, they're, they're in a better position. But again, I think, I think it's something we need to learn from. I think we all need to learn from this and say, what can we as individuals, as communities, as countries, as governments, as civil society, what can collectively we do better so that if this happens in five years or 50 years time, we'd be in a be better position as a community to address it. Yeah, that that is brilliant. Um, and just the final question, is there anything else that you would like to add to uh, this conversation? Yeah, no, th thank you, Anthony. And it, it's, it's such a, 
it's such an interesting i mean if if you if you take yourself out of all the all the disaster and the the, the terrible things that are happening around the world at the moment i think it's it's interesting for the, those of us who are lucky enough to be able to have some some headspace and some time to think about what positives might just one day emerge from the ongoing tragedy because you know covid-19 will not last forever or 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 it will not it will not be a disease that that kills hundreds of thousands of people forever so at some point this could be in 6 months it could be in 5 years but hopefully nearer the 6 months things will things will get better and then is it a case that then everybody says okay that's over let's just go back to doing all these things that we used to do um, and i'm thinking particularly about you know the sort of environmental damage the the pollution the all those kinds of things that um have in some ways been addressed accidentally by by people not traveling by 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 all sorts of things that we've been forced to do you know we've all seen or many of us would have seen the i just saw in south africa i think it was in cape town some uh, online some penguins wandering down the streets of simon's town or something um <laughs> just right down the middle of the road so you know do we want to go back to doing what we were doing to the planet for example do we want to go back to everybody traveling to work at the same time every day and sitting in offices all day or, or or do we want to find a better way as human beings of managing ourselves our working lives and the planet on on which we all rely so the optimist in me says look there might come a time when we can recognize that actually as human beings we can do a better job of managing our lives and the planet and this might just be a turning point um to allow us to at some point in the future move forward in a more positive way yeah and i really hope that that's what happens because um what we considered as normal clearly did not work and we we really need to change that as as i said the other day the world needs to come to a shift in our collective consciousness and and move to a space where we are not only taking care of each other but also taking care of the world that we live in we are taking care of the earth so thank you so much for taking your time to speak to me on this incredibly difficult topic but also an incredibly important one to have a conversation on right now and i really hope that we will have a chance to speak again soon thank you so much my pleasure anthony thank thank you so much i appreciate it bye bye